The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Janet Draper gets to play in the dirt and talk to people from around the world. This is her 25th year as the sole horticulturalist for the Smithsonian's Mary Livingston Ripley Garden. This tiny one-third of an acre garden is located on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., The garden is open to visitors 24 hours a day. Due to the nearly constant events occurring within stone's throw of the garden and major construction on the nearby aging buildings, the challenges of keeping the garden looking good can be a very daunting task. Janet's goal is to make the garden interesting every day by creating displays that educate and stimulate people to go outside and plant something. This is episode 87, Smithsonian's Ripley Garden with Janet Draper. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Janet, you're the horticulturalist of the Mary Livingston Ripley Garden in Washington, D.C. Would you introduce us to the garden? Many people call it a pocket garden or a secret garden. It's wedged between the Arts and Industries building, the second oldest red brick building on the mall, and the Hirshhorn Museum. It's only a third of an acre in the front of the garden facing the mall proper. It's got raised planters and then a meandering walkway that leads you to Independence Avenue. I'm the luckiest of the gardeners at Smithsonian because none of the museums claim this space as their own. So I am free to be the plant nerd that I am. Smithsonian's whole goal is to remind you of your history or educate or just get you excited. We are accredited as museums also. I want to show people cool plants, get them excited. I try not to grow things that are fairly common or pedestrian. I want to expand people's horizons and show them so many of the fabulous plants that are out there that are totally underused. The garden is tucked in between these two buildings, but you've got something unique going on under you also, don't you? Oh, yeah. There's a road underneath us. The garden was actually created in the 1960s. Ninth Street used to come directly across the mall on terra firma. City planners kind of realized a four-lane highway, pedestrians, maybe not such a good idea. So the road went underground, which opened up this space. It almost was a parking lot, and that's because at the same time this space opened up, the Enid Helped Garden on the west side of the Arts and Industries building was being built. That's a four and a half acre rooftop garden. 
It's DC. Everything is crammed in. This four and a half acre rooftop garden is being constructed on the other side of the building, but they were losing a parking lot constructing that garden. They just thought they would flip the parking lot onto the other side of the building. Luckily, Mrs. Ripley was there. She was the wife of our eighth secretary. And she's like, no, 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 no. We need gardens. We don't need more parking. Well, DC does need more parking, but that's another story. Mrs. Ripley and her husband, they were both advocates of green space. Lady Bird Johnson had been recently up on Capitol Hill touting beautification of America. Biophilia, the need for people to be around green space to make them happy and healthy. A compromise was made. Instead of a parking lot where the Ripley Garden stands, there is a small executive parking lot and the rest would be a garden. All thanks to Mrs. Ripley. That's who the garden is named for. She had one other request, and that was that this third of an acre garden would be accessible to everyone. It is a handicapped accessible garden. In the front or the north side of the garden, as you enter, there are raised planters. Then as you meander through those lower down to the ground level, in these raised planters, everyone, no matter what your physical abilities or challenges, you can touch plants, you write up with them. As a plants person, I can put these little tiny gems of plants right on the edge. If they were down at your feet, you would never notice. But having them elevated up really makes you stop and see the details. I have been the horticulturist in this garden for 24 years. I literally refer to it as my playground, and I describe my job as playing in the dirt and talking to people from around the world. <laughs> I am so fortunate, Craig. Uh, yeah, that sounds like a great place to work every day. It is. So I can stand at the front of the garden and see our nation's capital, the Washington Monument. It's just remarkable. You have a lot of events in Washington that bring a lot of people in. How does that affect the garden, being right on the mall? <laughs> oh, my. Well, there are pros and cons to being in such a prominent location. The Ripley Garden has no gates. Occasionally, we do put up fencing if we know that there's going to be a massive event on the mall to try to protect the spaces. Sometimes it works. Sometimes the events are bigger and monumental. The Ripley was trampled during President Obama's inauguration, something I'd never want to go through again. But when you stop and think about it, these people just wanted to be part of this historic event. It was not malicious. It was not intentional. They just wanted to be part of it. I learned a lot. I don't want to go through it again. In the end, it was a blessing. Nothing nefarious. You create these educational displays to stimulate people to go outside and plant something. What are some of the latest ideas that you thought were successful in accomplishing that? Oh, gosh. A couple of years ago, I tried to plant, and I guess I wasn't fully successful. I try and show people different styles of horticulture. Public horticulture used to be all these little soldiers in lines or a bed of red salvias. 
My style is very loose and open, and I like plants to mingle. I do not like segregation in the garden or anywhere else in life. Look at my sock drawer, you'll know. (laughs) Uh, But I did a tropical display this past year. I am so fortunate that we have phenomenal greenhouses with amazing plants sitting around in these greenhouses. And sometimes everything doesn't get used every year. So I walk through going, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll take this, and was able to just cram in this entire tropical extravaganza It was different because there were houseplants that normally you would think of only in that category of that's a houseplant, not a bedding out plant or something to be used in the garden. Maybe I shook them up a little bit or really confused people. Is that hardy here? (laughs) It's like, no, there are a lot of things. I plant out a lot of tropicals. Just the thought process because most gardeners don't ever want to kill any plant. Get over that. If you're looking at a tropical more as an annual, then it makes sense. But you may be digging these plants back up and putting them back in the greenhouse. I am. When you take a plant out of the Smithsonian garden, will it go back and repurpose later in another garden? It depends on what it is. Our greenhouses are very large. However, there's never enough space. So we cannot save everything. You have to sort of look at things like, is that a really valuable thing that takes years to grow on? Or is that something that you can start readily from seed or divisions or even purchase in new? Got to look at the financial end of it also. I tend to oversave. I try and save everything because I am frugal, frugal, frugal. But I'm getting better about letting plants go to the compost. So you must have a small compost pile. (laughs) Well, first of all, no one wants a compost pile on the National Mall. We have a trailer that every day someone drives down from our support facilities off campus. All the Smithsonian Gardens on the National Mall, we all bring our compost to that trailer and then it is dumped every day. A lot of logistics because our greenhouses are about 30 minutes away if traffic is flowing. If traffic is not flowing, a lot of coordination between our greenhouse team, our grounds team, the trucks and trailers. There's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, I would think the logistics on your guard would be super challenging. I've gotten used to it now. When I first arrived, yes, it was. But 24 years later, you figure things out. I've heard you say you're trying to create a garden with a longer season. How do you do that? First of all, downtown Washington, D.C., we're almost a zone eight. We're not a solid zone eight on the maps. We're still a seven, seven B, somewhere in there. We're in the heart of the city. There's so much pavement around. There's a little bit of hot air in Washington also from various sources. I can get away with surprising things. I've had dahlias over winter in the Ripley Garden for a couple of years now. The longer I garden, the more I think it's all about drainage for winter survival. I think drainage is as important as temperature in many ways. One of the things that I hate every year is when people come through It's autumn. And they're like, oh, you're closing down the garden for the winter. It's like, duh, no. The garden 
it lasts 12 months of the year. The garden may be different in the winter or what I refer to as the slower season. Things might be more subtle, but you can still have color and texture and form and things blooming. The hellebore season has just started and will only get better as it goes through. The osmanthus right now is in bloom. The camellias have started blooming. You talk about shutting the garden down? No, 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 no. Good plant choices and you can have something really interesting year round. What are some big ideas that a designer, builder, or a garden grower can take away from the Ripley Garden? Be passionate. Try. I guess this is more for the homeowner than the garden designer. If I were paid to do something, you need to know what you're doing and don't take risks with someone else's money and garden. For a home gardener, have fun. Relax. Goodness. And, and Craig, you mentioned earlier about killing plants. Oh, nobody has killed more plants than me. So get over that. It's okay to kill a plant once in a while or to have like a summer dalliance with a, with a plant and say goodbye at the end of the season. That is just fine. Support the nursery industry! <laughs> the Ripley's brought some Euonymus in from their home, I believe, in Connecticut. Are they still there? Yes, they are. The tunnel had just been finished and the garden was the rudimentary. It was still just a path connecting the mall to Independence Avenue. Then the Hershorn Museum built their concrete wall, dividing the Hershorn from this space. The wall must have been really stark and looking like a fortress. This is states of Mr. Ripley's relatives. He remembered as a child the gardener there pruning these euonymus alatus, just normal euonymus, into topiaries. That estate burned to the ground. Mr. Ripley knew everything was going to be bulldozed. He sent gardeners up to Connecticut to dig these euonymus, and there were seven at the time. They were brought back and put on the Ripley wall. There are at least three that are still living. Euonymus are not my favorite plant. It's not a good plant for DC. It gets scale, it gets powdery mildew, it gets all of these things. However, I love the idea that a common plant was used differently and elevated to a work of art. Mr. Ripley must have had a very large heart to see that and remember that and save those for the next generation. I wish I knew the gardener's name because he or she deserves credit. Does everybody experience those challenges the farther north you get? Or is that just more like zone eight and higher zones? That... What, with the euonymus? Right, those challenges. Eh, it's kind of a dog of a plant in the heat. It's the hotter and humidity in D.C. It was a swamp after all. <laughs> it is pretty sultry during the summer. Powdery mildew is just prevalent on many plants. I would think you've seen a lot of changes over your 24 years with the garden. How has the garden evolved during your time there? I have three fantastic volunteers that help me, and one of them has been with me more than 16 years. She has put up with me. She just recently sent me a little montage of pictures from over the years. 
you forget how much things change until you see pictures like that. Certain plants that were there when I started, there aren't many left because many of them, I gave them the axe pretty quickly when I got there. Purple leaf plums, just some things that I knew we could do better. Just seeing plants like trees that I planted that are now fully mature and gorgeous, like an Acer griseum, seeing that exfoliating bark, and now it's big. Acer sangu kaku, the coral bark maple that turns this lovely orangey red young growth as the temperatures drop. They're just lovely. And then, of course, we have to say goodbye to old friends occasionally. I had to take out two mature American elms the fall of 2019, a blessing and a curse at the same time. I suddenly had areas that were not root infested and I could play in the sun. The curse also is playing in the sun and it's much hotter without those trees. I've noticed you don't mulch in the garden. Why is that? Why do we need mulch? If you stop and think about why you're doing something, I used to only put down pine finds as like a top dressing to make it pretty. Really, I plant so densely that I really don't even need that. I do a lot of self-sown annuals, and when you mulch, you often won't get those things. One of the other things for mulching is weed suppression. I keep up with the weeds. My volunteers help too. There aren't that many weeds and I don't have a weed source blowing in. Yes, it's often done, but it isn't essential to grow a good garden. Seems to be a sense that there's a war against mulch, and that just seems counterintuitive to me. Not that you have a war against mulch and what you're doing, but do you sense that also? Just heard it mentioned several times. Is that a fair observation? Maybe it's war against excessive mulching. Mm-hmm. I so see what I call the mobile and go crews, the landscapers that come down and every year they put down fresh mulch just to make it look pretty. It's not needed and it's actually detrimental to the plants because pretty soon you have this layer of mulch that keeps growing and growing and the plants are suffocating. Often in a perennial garden, They need well-drained soils and air. It's not like wearing a turtleneck all summer and suffocating them. There might be a war, but it's a war on bad use of mulch. We're chopping down trees to put it down too thickly where it's not needed and killing the plants in the process instead of being helpful The way mulch is being applied by many people is detrimental. Volcanoes in Washington? Oh, my goodness. Oh, they get impressive. The thing is, the guys that are laying down the mulch, or women, they think they're doing a beautiful job. And they are working really, really hard. I've seen them pat them down to make sure it stays in place as it's going up that trunk. A couple of times, I will actually stop and go talk to the crew and try to educate them about what the mulch is doing and things like that. When I do, they're like, oh, we didn't know. It's not the fault of the crew. It's homeowners that ask for this to be done that they don't know 
and the professionals that are laying the mulch don't know. So there's a lack of education. There's really no slow season for the gardener because they're always planning for next year. What are your plans next year for the garden? Oh, gosh, Craig, I wish I knew. (laughs) I try to do something new and different every year. One, because I want to be fresh. I want to be relevant. I don't want to rest on my laurels and do the same thing I did last year. I want the visitors to have a reason to come back. It's like, oh, let's see what she's done this year. But a lot of times, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a good planner. I am very spontaneous many times. But I am hoping one thing that I want to do next year is add more plant structure. I need to find a welder to help me build some rebar, plant stands, structure, and maybe some things to grow things up. Use the vertical space as much as I do the horizontal space. I don't know yet. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you got a big idea there. Ready to be spontaneous, huh? Ah, well, yeah. (laughs) How does that spontaneous process work? You make it sound like it always works. Um, (laughs) I guess I'm lucky enough, I'm not afraid to fail in front of the public. I'll have a rough idea what I want to do in my mind. Here's an example I just finished. There's a beautiful, ornate fountain in the middle of the Ripley Garden at the north end. It's an antique. It is gorgeous. It's this heron fountain. Three tiers, really big. But when it's drained in the winter so pretty as a focal point. Pretty ugly. So I try to decorate for the winter season. I don't want to make it look like all Christmassy and Santa, blow up Santa on it. I try to sort of bling it out a little bit. In various years, I've used natural materials. I've used lanterns. I've used logs. I've used a lot of things. For many years, I used a thousand pounds of recycled blue glass. I had a platform and I shovel in all this glass and I had twinkle lights underneath it. I blew the fuse the first day and, you know, there's a thousand pounds of glass on the platform. You can't lift it up and redo it. I just went to our storage area to see what materials were available this year. With COVID, I hadn't done it for two years because I had no volunteers and I really was behind on doing things. I just went out and tried to scrounge up whatever artificial greens and things I could use to fill the basins and bling it out. I really had no idea other than I was finding a lot of silver stuff and I was finding a lot of white things. You just start putting it together and seeing what you come up with. That's pretty much the way I garden also. I'll have a color scheme in mind, maybe one beautiful plant that I'm starting with. Then I just start triangulating off of that and hoping, (laughs) (laughs) hoping it turns out okay. Not only color, but textures and other things like that come into that process. Oh, yeah. Also, for like the fountain, I don't want it looking Christmassy. That fountain will be drained until February, March. It has to have a long season of interest and hold up. I don't use natural greens anymore because D.C. has gotten so warm. Those won't last through the winter. I do things, the lessons learned, usually by failures or things like that. 
just keep tweaking and refining and trying. What do you have to lose? Really, what do you have to lose? Exactly. Where does your inspiration come from on these type projects? I'm always searching for inspiration. The internet is amazing. You can find so many great ideas. Deborah Silver in Michigan, Detroit Garden Works, does just the most beautiful winter containers. I travel, Chanticleer Gardens in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Oh my God, they're magicians, they're geniuses, they're friends of mine, and I hate them because they're so good. No, no, they are just fabulous. Meet with like-minded individuals. Go to art museums. You never know where inspiration's going to strike. Just get out and see things. How does being a member of the Perennial Plant Association feed into that inspiration? Oh my God, my family. Seriously, the Perennial Plants Association is an international group of horticulturists. We are all plant nerds. We're all professionals in some form of the industry. We could be growers, retailers, designers. You could be a supplier of plugs. You can be a marketer. Anything to do with plants. It can be soil or pot suppliers or something like that. Once a year, this merry band of chlorophyllic addicts get together in a different city in the U.S. or Canada. We spend a week and it's like a chlorophyllic Baptist church revival. It is so much fun, so exhausting. We have top-notch speakers, and then we also get on buses and go out to see the best things that region has to offer horticulturally by growers, retail, private gardens, or public gardens. I have seen gardens all across the U.S., Vancouver, just wonderful things, not just gardens. They also get us out to see plants in the wild, hiking on Whistler Mountain with Dan Hankley as your guide botanizing down in North Carolina to see the Saracenias. When you travel with like-minded, passionate individuals, if you don't come back inspired, curious, and mind-thrumming, you're in the wrong business. Can you tell I love these people? I have learned so much from them. Yeah, I love my association with the perennial plant. I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Craig. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? Just be adventurous. Goodness, we've got enough straight lines. We've got enough gardens that all look the same with meatballs up against the side of a house. Use your front yard. Don't just mow it. Use it. Just get out and play more. Experiment. Yeah, and kill a few plants. Don't worry about killing plants. What's a garden myth you'd like to smash? Oh, the garden myth is putting the garden to bed in the fall. I mean, come on, stop it. This whole idea of tidying everything up, cutting everything to the ground and having a clean slate going into winter. How boring is that? I love to look out over my back garden at home. I don't cut anything. Well, I cut a few things that die ugly, that just sort of look like a dinosaur died or something. Like my banana. A dead banana in the winter is not an attractive thing. I leave all my grasses up and all the other seed heads and things like that. Just watching the bounty of life that is in the garden. 
the birds that come through. Our backyard is the favorite habitat of all the cats in the neighborhood because there's nooks and crannies and hidey places. The garden does not go to sleep during the winter. And if yours does, you need to think about winter interest. There's so many things. Uh, the camellias are just blooming now, or one type of camellia. Osmanthus is blooming now. So many gorgeous things. What's your earliest garden memory? <laughs> Working in the vegetable garden. I grew up in Indiana. I'm the youngest of six children. Six kids! Those were a lot of mouths to feed. We had an acre property, and I think a half an acre of that was the vegetable garden. We were always out working in the vegetable garden. As my older siblings left home, then we got to do more and more flowers, which mom and I really, and dad too. My parents were so inspirational growing up. They taught me how to germinate cotton using the, and this sounds really gross, but it's not. We had a gas stove. There was always the pilot light, which kept everything warm. And you could put a little pan on that little strip between the burners as bottom heat. You could germinate cotton, peanuts, or all these wonderful things. My parents really encouraged all of us to understand things living. I owe a lot to them. Why did you decide to pursue the horticultural profession? I'm so fortunate. I've had this passion and curiosity about living plants. Animals are really cool too, but there's some things that come out of them that I'm not so keen on. Plants are so amazing. The idea that you can cut off a finger and grow a whole new body, that's just remarkable. I've always had this deep interest and curiosity about plants. What I wanted to do with that curiosity or that interest, I had no clue. But I knew my life would be something to do with plants. Do you have a funny garden story you could tell us? When I first started at Smithsonian, I was coming from the private industry. I was doing estate work for millionaires in some absolutely phenomenal places, but not in the public. I started Smithsonian, the Ripley Garden. There's a central planting bed. When I got there, that was the herb garden. I very quickly dubbed it the herb ghetto, that only herbs could be in here. Again, segregation. No! Herbs are good people too. They can mingle wherever they feel freedom to mingle. I'm there and I'm yanking out many of these things and just saving some, composting others. This lady comes up and she was furious. That's a word I can use. (laughs) (laughs) She was really, really angry. Hands on the hips and, you know, like yelling at me, what are you doing? And I'm like, hey, hi, I'm Janet. I'm the new gardener here, and I'm changing up this herb garden. She's like, how am I going to find herbs for my cooking? It's like, oh, oh. (laughs) Welcome to public horticulture. I mean, (laughs) such, I mean, what? (laughs) So there is one person walking around Washington that thinks I use some really toxic chemicals. (laughs) But uh, uh, yeah, anyway, public gardens have different meanings for different people. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? That would have to be the late Dr. Harrison Flint. 
He was my major professor when I graduated from Purdue. My degree was in horticulture, and I had no clue what I was going to do after I graduated. Went and basically put my life on his desk and said, hey, if you were in my shoes, what would you do? He very thoughtfully asked me what kind of plants I was interested in. And of course, I named off anything that had chlorophyll. Trees, shrubs, you know, woodies, perennials, aquatics. Ah, yeah. And he's like, woo, no, calm it down. You need to get more experience so that you can refine your goals. He also knew that I had grown up in a little town of 3,000 with one stoplight in the entire county in Indiana, and I hadn't been exposed to horticulture, really. Horticulture in Indiana is cornfields. He suggested that I leave Indiana and take an internship on the East Coast at Mount Cuba. Thanks to Dr. Flint, he got me out of my comfort zone and exposed me to another whole world of just amazing possibilities. And then I asked that same question, what would you do if you were in my shoes? After I completed my internship at Mount Cuba, the director at the time was Dr. Richard Lighty, a dear friend. I asked him the same thing. I became a pass-along plant. <laughs> he sent me to work for Kurt Blumel, who was introducing ornamental grasses and perennials to the U.S. at the time. My mind was blown and I learned so much. And then Kurt wanted me to learn the European way of doing things. Through him, I was able to work for Countess von Stein Zeppelin in the Black Forest of Germany for a year. Amazing nursery, over 3,000 taxa of plants in the catalog. Whoa. That's not including the ones just sitting around. And that was the year the wall came down. Talk about having a Midwesterner's mind blown. The year after that, I was able to work for Victoria Medal of Honor holder Beth Chatto in her nursery. All of these wonderful opportunities came to me because of amazing mentors that guided me. Because this is pre-internet. You couldn't just Google something and find things out. You needed to make connections with people. I am so indebted to them. What is your most valuable garden mistake? <laughs> oh, well, it goes back to killing plants, Craig. While I was working at Kurt Blumel's, and I ended up being there for about three years, we had grown an amazing crop of Artemisia Powis Castle. There's like 2,500 plants, beautiful one-gallon, full plants. Going into the winter... In the nursery industry, you cover things up and close down your poly houses. The poly foam, it was hard to pull this foam over these big plants. So I just went in and cut them all back pretty hard because most perennials you can cut back hard and they come back better in the spring. Well, not Artemisia, Powis Castle. I killed about 2,000 of them. In the spring, we did not have a good crop to sell, that's for sure. The lesson learned is semi-woody like that, perovskia, artemisia, some of those woody things, do not cut them back in the winter. Leave them up, and that goes the same for rosemary and lavender too. Do not cut them back until new growth is seen in the spring. I will never make that mistake again. That was a costly one. 
What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? A new plant group that for me had always been greenhouse, hadn't explored the world of bromeliads. I didn't know an acme from umblendidia near neo regalia. I, I still don't really know them. But again, my friends up at Chanticleer were using them as tropical plants planted out in the garden because they just look great the entire season. So it's like, hmm, if they can do it up there, let me try. So I used a variety of bromeliads out planted in the garden last year, both full sun bromeliads and shade bromeliads, and loved them. They bite wickedly in the spring when you're planting them because the serrated edges, you've got to wear Kevlar, you know, when planting them. But God, they look so good and such dramatic structure and form and color and ah, gorgeous. (laughs) This is about your personal garden. I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have life. I have life birds, the animals, the insects. We have a fox that visits our compost pile almost nightly. We have these chairs that overlook our back windows and the whole back of our home is windows. That's why we bought the house. The rest of the house was not so good, but the windows and the potential. I can sit in these chairs facing the garden and just watch the life the activity, the insects that come to the salvia, the hummingbirds that come during the summer, the birds that come through, the brown thrashers, and they kick stuff up. You know, they're just amazing. The flock of robins that is going through right now, there's so much life. It's because we have a pond in the back that we dug. We have water features. We keep a heater in the pond so that there's always water available for the animal population. We have raccoons that use the storm drains as their tunnel system. You know, it's like the raccoon subway system (laughs) right in the city. What'd you learn from your garden this year that you're going to apply to it next year? Well, my work garden. I learned that bromeliads, they hold water because that's where they get their nutrients and everything. Mosquitoes love that standing water. So mosquito dunks broken up and put in that standing water really helps because otherwise you're going to have a mess of mosquitoes. That water, when you dig them out in the fall, it's stinky. (laughs) Okay. What about your personal garden? What did you learn from it? Oh, my personal garden. Our front yard is a meadow. We have no lawn. We live in a great neighborhood. The meadow needs a little more structure. I like the wild look and I love a big, big, expansive meadow where you can see the forms and shapes. But when it's pulled down to a matter of square feet, it doesn't read as well unless you've really planned out some structure within the meadow. I think I need more verticality, tweaking, and refining. How do your neighbors respond to a no-grass garden? They're envious. They love it. I'm always a little nervous about, am I pushing the boundaries a little too far? But our neighborhood is incredibly liberal. I knew when we were looking around the neighborhood, one of the neighbors a couple of doors down, her walkway is lined with bowling balls and there's a toaster on her as a weather vane up above. She's a cook. 
I knew our neighbors would be very receptive of this. I've had a couple stop and ask me various questions. Just having the conversation of why and this and that. When I talk about the insect population and the need for more natives and things, not everyone has heard the message so far. When I just clearly explained some of these things, it was like a light bulb moment for a couple of people going through. I try and keep the front yard neat and tidy. Often see people just standing at the edge and watching. It's the number of birds that are in there. It's the diversity. With a well-planted garden, there's always something of interest. I have heard so many compliments. In this meadow, I've planted bulbs in early spring. People will be like, oh, I'm so excited about your bulbs. And, you know, do you mind my taking photographs of your garden? It's like, of course not. I'm flattered. It's well-received. What plant are you in love with this week? (laughs) This week. This week. I love that. I'm not sure if it's osmanthus because the fragrance is just amazing. There's some chrysanthemums right now. People think of chrysanthemums as those little squatty things you buy before Thanksgiving and they look good for two weeks and then you throw them out. Some of the old-fashioned chrysanthemums, there's one called Kathy's Rust, which is a beautiful single flower. I forgot to cut her back, so right now she's a little tall and rambunctious. She's about five feet tall, but she mingles and she's elegant. She's just gorgeous. Jessamine Moonlight is a pale, lemony yellow. The bees are still nectaring on. There's some bok choy that I plant out for a winter interest. Beautiful bok choy rosy. It's this burgundy foliage. The mahonia is blooming in my front yard. Oh, Craig, do I have to choose one? No, I like the extended list. <laughs> Good. Oh, fatsias are in bloom too. You know, I was surprised by my fatsia. I had the spider web. I didn't even know they bloomed. And one morning I opened my curtains and there it is. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, what a surprise. Yeah, it's so funky. And the amount of the flies and the bees that are attracted to those things, it's wonderful. Just a few years ago, I didn't even think they were hardy in our area. I need to start including those more in designs. Yeah, they're perfectly hardy in the D.C. area. You should have no problem. Is there anything else I should have asked you? How much coffee I drink every day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I don't think so. I'm, I'm just so fortunate. To have a job that I love, I get to be creative, I get to talk to people from around the world, and people love to talk about their gardens or to teach me. One year I had Amorphophallus paeonifolius, this weird, ugly thing in bloom. There was a, a gentleman from India, he's like, oh yes, we grow that as a food crop. He taught me so much about it. You can learn from anyone if you just listen. There's so many life lessons out there and and plant lessons. Janet, tell us how people may connect with you. First of all, go to Smithsonian Gardens website, which is gardens.si.edu. On that website, you can find so many free things. We do a lecture series every week. There are webinars. They are taped and then you can go and watch them at your convenience totally free, or you can sign up and get a Zoom link and watch them live. 
You can also connect with us on Instagram at Smithsonian Gardens. Everything about Smithsonian Gardens, we are free and open to the public. Our goal is to share information and inspire. Those are the best ways to contact us. This has been episode 87, Smithsonian's Ripley Garden with Janet Draper on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Janet. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.